Episode 8 of It's All Trash, a podcast diving into the trash world of education. My name is Sabrina Alicea. I am a lifelong educator. Today, I am joined by Joshua Smizer de Leon, host of the Paseo podcast. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing well, Sabrina. Thanks for having me on your show. This is a big deal. I feel it like is. the tables have turned. You've been <laughs> on a few times. Now I'm on yours. Uh, welcome to the podcasting game. Yes, I'm so excited. You got me really into it. Your experience was super duper duper fun being on on your podcast and like, yeah, I could actually talk about things. And have, <laughs> I actually been on your podcast a couple times because even with the festival yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so we're gonna, yes, yes. Your teaching background, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, but we're gonna get into your podcast a little bit more. But first, I want to do a social emotional check in. Um, want to talk about how you're feeling today? Give us a peak and a valley. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, ooh. You know, I'm feeling old today um, only because I realized I went to a chiropractor recently. I thank God I'm privileged and blessed enough to have a job with good insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, the chiropractor, and it turns out I, I may have a hairline fracture in my left foot. Oh, my uh, God. And all I did was jump a gate. So, I mean, I think it's about time. It's just downhill from here. So, but I will say um, very, very hopeful because uh, I started at the start of the summer planting produce in my backyard. It's just like a little spot that I have, um, you know, right outside the door, but um, finally producing like tomatoes and peppers and blueberries. So it's, you know, I don't have any kids. So it's like the closest I'm coming to like seeing something grow you know but uh yeah. Yeah, so that's it's been good so I, i'm feeling old but you know i'm thriving at the same time honestly that the, the your entire thing that you just shared it's like you're very much in your 30s aren't you yeah. that's what you that's yeah. what you just said first starting off that you have to go to a chiropractor in the first place i know <laughs> And the joy is you're planting in the garden. I love it. I'm very, very happy for you. That's so beautiful. I'm getting to my twilight years. My twilight. Yeah, you're you're living the dream. That's the dream. That's really beautiful. Well, I was sharing before we even started that uh, my valley is is kind of about space. Like I'm hearing you talk about like you're planting and stuff, and I I want to plant things so bad. I want like outside space that I can use right now. I'm just like a front porch that I can hang out on, but everybody else is around there. And, um, well, I guess it goes with my peak more. So we have books and backpacks coming up this weekend and like, it's been really great because it's the third year and things are just running like, God, I, I hope knock on wood that this state remains true, but, um, things have just been running really smoothly this year. So there's like just a lot of peace with running it. Um, well, one thing I'm doing is we're making these bags for moms who come to the event. Cause every time, you know, it's, it's about the kids, it's about the school supplies, but we know in these communities, moms hold shit down, right? Like they're the ones who are probably signing up and, and we take uh, demographic data. So it is mostly women signing up. Um, and so we made them bags that say like, you know, who's the perfect mother. And it's like that, you know, all the little mommy things like uh, mm-hmm. cute. chapstick planners, whatever, all this cute stuff like on the bag. And I'm making the bags manually. 
Wow. Um, this artist, Lorimar Matos, Puerto Rican artist, mom, she is, she's amazing. She's the one who designed the graphic on there. And so all these things are running really, really great. But um, I had no room in my office for my heat press. Like you can see behind me, this is where I work. This is where I do my resin. I have like all these things. I just like have no space. And I'm trying not to get into this like greedy, not grateful place because like the fact that I have an office is privileged as well. But I just do so much that I'm like, I need more space. And I don't, I like, I can't even, after I make the resin, like behind me, there's resin boards up because I have nowhere to put them. I don't have like a flat place to lay oh, in. Brutal. Yeah. yeah. Wait, so, so you're putting all the backpacks together at your place? No. Oh my goodness. Okay. Not at all. We, okay. we got better at doing that. We do it at the field house. And, and actually what we used to do the first year, we, we did stuff the backpacks ourselves. Oh, this is a backpack for a kindergartner. This is a backpack gotcha. for high yeah, school. Yeah. But what we decided was it's actually easier to lay everything out and let the kids shop. It's more fun that mm-hmm. way too, because they get true. to pick. Yeah. yeah. So they're doing that. The thing we're doing that I'm making at home is bags for the moms as like a treat. There's going to be like, we're making 30 of them. And small businesses are filling it with like little candles and like monos and all this cute stuff for the moms. Um, that's what I'm making. I'm making a tote bag for them. I even have like a bruise like on my wrist because like pressing down on the heat press. It's brutal. But I'm, I, know I keep, moms I, is good. I was going to say, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just saying, I keep no. up with you on Instagram and I know you have your hands in a lot of things. So, I mean, the fact that you're pulling off as much as you are pulling off in a singular room, <laughs> home yes. office. Yes. I mean, my gosh, uh, kudos to you. Hopefully uh, the funding uh, takes like a nice little increase and you're able to kind of distri- redistribute the the work there and delegate, oh, yeah. or at least have a space like the field house to keep working a bit more consistently. And I mean, what a blessing to have the field house. I know y'all, I mean, I know you specifically and you know others in the Puerto Rican community use that a lot. So personally, we vol- my wife and I volunteered for... Mm-hmm school event you did and I thought it was fantastic that was like you said everything was already packed and yeah you know, so I love the the switch and having them shop a little bit it's gonna it's be cute. really cute yeah it is so cute the way that they get to pick out even if they're looking at well okay well I want this type of eraser versus this right, one right. and yeah it's every year we're elevating this year we got um a lot of like bigger sponsors so like AT&T is uh, the flagship store on Michigan Avenue has a box that's down there and it's like a nice, really beautiful actual mailbox that they put in. And then they're helping us get some funds, the Miracle Center as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Miracle Center partnered with PepsiCo. So like just really, really big, nice, nice things that are just going to be great for the community. So I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah. Hopefully next year it's that we can also pay someone to make bags that I don't have to press it on my own in my house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my Actually, seeing, awesome. you, seeing you do that makes me like, because I know you have the uh, la Maestra shop and all mm-hmm. that. Like seeing you doing the press stuff, I'm like, man, I want like, a, I want to get like a setup like that, but I get, I'll get too carried away. I'll like, That's I'm a good gear guy. I'm like, oh, I want to make my own shirts. Next thing you know, my wife's going to be like, I don't are you making can we swear on this show yeah I don't you know. can swear <laughs> yeah, like, why the fuck did you buy this thing you already have so many t-shirts and stuff you're just making stuff to make stuff yeah but, you know, i like you need to i feel like you and i have those creative parts of our minds that mm-hmm. we can flex those muscles and if we yeah. don't kind of like you know, a little stagnant you yeah know? you get bored because you also you and your wife do bohio it's called bohio arts too yeah, right bohio arts so uh we're taking a little bit of this whole summer sabrina has been like a big hi- hiatus i put like okay. a screen time monitoring thing on my phone i'm down percent on my daily usage also we take a break in the summer for the podcast and 
any of the woodworking stuff we do. So that was the Bohio Arts thing you were mentioning. So a lot of like woodworking around like uh, Puerto Rican culture specifically, but people will come in and say, hey, can you make this piece out of wood that represents my Irish heritage? Um, so we'll like, we'll make like simple stuff, like and intricate stuff, like puzzles, you know, yeah. uh, coasters, fun stuff like that. Um, one person asked for a map of Ireland. Uh, I've been slowly <laughs> making my way through Latin America. Yeah. So that is like a therapeutic Mm -hmm. uh, thing for me like it relieves stress it's very like it takes skill and work but it's also mindless to a certain extent at the same time so it allows me to escape flex those creative muscles work with my hands get away from like the office desk chair setup um so yeah i gotta flex those creative muscles i think physically spiritually mentally it's something for me yeah, I'm I'm the same exact way. Even with the with the resin, like I've said, what's so beautiful about it, especially if I'm like recording it because I make videos of it. Yes. Um, and it's yeah, so those are cool. Thank you. I love doing yeah, it, and yeah. I'm like, I can't use, I can't be on the phone. I have to be messing with this thing, and so it's like the one time where I can like actually unplug. Mm-hmm. And you know, when when we both of us also have that type of work where you're like really using your brain all day long and problem solving and things like that. So when you get this moment to just be creative and unplug from the world, it's really beautiful. Yeah. Really beautiful. I I love it. Yeah. Well, before we get into the rest of our fun stuff, we're going to do a game. Are you ready for a game? I hope I I am. You are. I'm a little nervous. I'm sweating. (laughs) You know, everyone gets so nervous for these games, but then they have a lot of fun. I never want to make any of my guests look bad. So just know it's that you're you're never going to look bad. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, But because we're we're both sort of, you know, in this academic realm and things about Puerto Rico, (laughs) the game, the game is is trivia about Puerto Rico. So we're going to test your knowledge and see what you know about Puerto Rican trivia. So. Before we start this game, I need to preface this for the audience. I've taken a multi-month break on Puerto Rican news, everything Puerto Rico for the podcast. So this is going to be an interesting test to see how well my brain actually retains these facts. So I'm I'm pumped. Here we go. You're going to know. I have to say it should be something that almost... I hate to do a, are you Puerto Rican enough? But almost every Puerto Rican should know these things. Oh, no. Okay. Well, now the pressure is definitely on. (laughs) Thanks. So the first question, you ready? Yes. All right. What were the famous lines of Lolita Lebron after being arrested for shooting in Congress? Oh, uh, oh man, I'm paraphrasing, but it's okay uh, to paraphrase. I basically, I didn't come here to kill anybody. I came to die for my country. Woo! Good job. You got that one right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. This one, you. I don't know if <laughs> this one's a little bit Shit. specific. All right. What year was the Jones Act put into place? Is it 1917? Yes, beautiful. Oh, you got oh, it. Jeez. Yes, and and bonus points if you can say which U.S. president was in office at the time. Oh, oh, fuck Hoover. No, <laughs> <laughs> it was Woodrow Wilson. It's okay. That was oh, bonus. That but yeah, was you got 1917. That's crazy. Good for you. I didn't know that. I had to look it up. Okay. <laughs> Um, where did the name Borinquen come from? Ah, uh, it's the original name for Puerto Rico by the Taino people. They would be called it Borinquen. And I believe there's another name, another indigenous name that existed before Borinquen, but the name escapes me. But that's the, the most popular one. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. All right. What mix of three groups do Puerto Ricans claim to come from? 
African, European, and indigenous, mm. Tainos. Beautiful. Specifically Spain, but yes. I mean, yeah. you have a lot. Yeah, we have a mix there. It's a nice mix, yeah. yeah. This is a total, total side note caveat, but my last name, Alicea, um, I once like asked this Puerto Rican genealogist guy the, the history of it because he's like was very knowledgeable about Puerto Rican last names. And he said that the Aliceas are like one of the original named families in Puerto Rico. Like it's a very Puerto Rican, and you don't hear it outside of Puerto Rico. But I also had remember looking up at one point that it came before Puerto Rico, it was in France. Like it was a French last name and those people came to Puerto Rico. And there was some sort of like historical movement where um, French people came to the island. And I don't know, so I don't know if like, my lineage is like the landowners or the owned. Like I don't know, like where that, what that history is. But um, yeah, that's supposedly the history of my name. You should go on that show, that PBS show. I forget. I wish. But yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Where yes. they go through, they'll go through records. I'm like, man, I would just hire them privately to do it because they yes. just go in depth. I would love to know where De Leon comes from. Or me, my last name is Smizer De Leon, but my dad is adopted, so I have this German last name. My dad's from Spain. My mom's from Salvador. So in Puerto Rico. Okay. But I'm like, man, where the hell did this Smizer name come from? Yeah. Uh, origin my biological last name would be uh Carvajal. Okay. So I would love to find out where Carvajal comes from, De Leon comes from, you know, that's like I, I love that. An ancestry tree. I don't know yeah. why, but it's, it's cool because it's cool to know where you're from. Yeah, because you're gonna we're into that stuff. I actually <laughs> had an ancestry uh like I, I ended up going on a rabbit hole on ancestry.com because of my grandmother we went back to her family in in puerto rico and we're trying to find out just where people were so yeah i've, d I've definitely been on that too but it gets too crazy okay all right <laughs> next slide where okay here's the next question what election are puerto ricans on the island not allowed to vote in uh the presidential election if you live on the island if yes. you have a residency in the u.s you can crazy so you could literally go to orlando and vote Right. I know, I know. That's even not to like derail us, but there's even it gets even more complicated for Boricuas trying to vote in a presidential election coming from the island to here. Because I mean, we have so many we have so many political parties on the island. We're here where we got the main two. So it's, it's a lot of context history for people to wrap their minds around when they uh, migrate over here. So it's it's not it's it even when you're allowed to vote, it's hard to make sense of what where where you should vote. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And if you can, if you are really allowed, if you're, per, you're per, uh, permitted to at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. All right, two more questions. And they're oh. going to be very easy. All right. What was the popular phrase and hashtag used during the 2019 protest against the governor? Ricky, Ricky, renunciar. Yes, exactly. Good, good. My tongue wasn't cooperating. <laughs> all, right. all right. Last question, and I will be highly offended if you don't get this one correct. Um, <laughs> so the stakes are high. Gosh. Who was the first Puerto Rican to go to Harvard? Oh, Pedro Abizu Campos. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. See, I yeah, told yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. I told you you were good. <laughs> seven oh. out of seven. The only one you didn't get right was the bonus of Woodrow Wilson, but who would know that? Damn. Yeah. How do you feel? Do you feel accomplished? Do you feel intelligent? <laughs> I feel connected? very intelligent. I feel a lot better. Like, again, going into my 30s, I was like, man, I don't know if I, you know, the old noodle can retain as much information, but I got through all of them, so you I'm did. good. 
good. I'm feeling good. And great questions, by the way, too. Like I had to kind of hold myself because once you're like, yes, that's correct. I was like, okay, now I'm going to go down this rabbit hole. Right. Like I just, you know, on the show, we do this all the time. And that's probably why the episodes are so long. Uh, but uh, I was like, all right, all right, cool. I'm not sweating as much as I was at the start of the quiz. So yes, I appreciate I'm glad. it. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, Thank fun. you for playing. That was really good. Okay, beautiful. So now um, I want to talk about some trash or treasure news. I have no treasure. I only have trash today. Mm. So um, going along with the whole theme of the entire podcast, I don't know if you've heard this, but it's something that's been circulating the education sphere um, about a new state law in Florida that requires, it's a bill that was put into place and it's going to require books to be pre-approved by state certified media specialists. So that sounds like solid, right? Like, oh, a librarian needs to kind of like sift through the books. But um, the problem is that, or not the problem, one of the many problems is that the governor DeSantis is doing a lot of picking and choosing of what is allowed and not allowed within these schools, right? So recently he banned discussing sexual orientation and gender identity in classrooms, kindergarten through third grade. Um, the the In my kind of experience and understanding that doesn't really come up as much in those classrooms anyway but it's just like another way to make a statement that you know of what he thinks is right and and wrong um and he says that this law is going to move towards curriculum transparency and help prevent indoctrination through the school system but people who oppose the law have argued that it's going to really allow the state's really conservative conservative communities to censor the libraries and public education. Um, the state's going to offer some training, but you know, personally, I have very little hope that the training is going to be any good. Um, there was recently some files that came out about a different training they did for history, and they presented little blurbs with like uh, Washington and Abraham, Le- not Abraham Lincoln. I'm sorry, Washington and Jefferson, stating that they were anti-slavery, um, which we all know is just not true, right? Like they were, they were pretty pro-slavery. Um, and so that's what's going on in Florida. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, I, one, it's a step in the wrong direction. Um, you know, I don't, I am very much a free speech person. So I think one of the things that makes our country great is our ability to access knowledge when, where we want it. Um, the library system was a fantastic start to that, you know, walking into any brick and mortar building and you can rent something. Their move to having books available online for to e-read, at least here at Chicago Public Library, mm-hmm. you know, having something like that is so valuable for our own knowledge, challenging our, our, our perspectives on things, exposing us to new ways of thinking, different issues happening around the world, or even our own history that we don't really hear in the classrooms. So it's, I think, unfortunately, in a lot of like Republican red state, uh, Republican run states, even like democratically run states too, we have this tendency, and maybe this is controversial, but I think we have this tendency to lean into identity politics so much. While that's important, um, you know, we, we're taking identity into account is important, um, and lifting that up is important. Supporting people and their choice and how they identify is important. When we dictate how we view identity and put that into policy in a way that harms our basic human rights, 
um, what are we really doing? We're kind of cutting off our, what's the term? Cutting off our nose to spite our face. To spite your face, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so like what about all the little kids that could really benefit? What about the, a Puerto Rican kid in Orlando that could benefit from reading a book like War Against All Puerto Ricans? It talks about something like the Ponce Massacre, which the CIA, the U.S. government, and the police state in Puerto Rico at the time helped contribute to the death of and harming of children, parents, uh, individuals just trying to be a part of a, a parade. Um, so to me, you're just cutting off access to knowledge unfairly, um, and discriminately, uh, mm-hmm. just to serve whatever you feel your, your base wants. And I tend to think, and maybe I have too much hope in, in our society as an American nation. I like to think that majority of people are against this and you really have a loud minority that are pushing can really, are really in those positions to pull those strings to pull off legislation like this. Yeah. Um, Cause you're right. We've, we've seen the censoring law. We've seen their don't say gay bill. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we, we allow identity politics to kind of guide policymaking and don't realize the long-term effects and impacts that could have. Cause you could start censoring books now. Okay. What's next? What else are you going to censor next? Is it a particular lesson plan? Is it in a classroom? Is it the way a teacher is allowed to dress? Can mm-hmm. what we say, you know, you can't talk about your transition from, from male to female or vice versa. Uh, and you know what? Yes. You, you also can't talk about, you can't talk about your black wife, your black yeah. husband. Um, you know, where does it, where do we stop here? Right. Uh, Where's the line? Right. I, I 100% agree with you. And I, uh, on one of the episodes I had my friend James on, and he's really into politics, and he kind of made this statement that really resonated and connects to this, where he talked about there's there's like facts, and then there's people's versions of facts. And then there's this concept that like some people don't want to hear what those facts are. I try to be a more fact-based person. And so even when you know the Roe v. Wade most recent ruling came out, You know, I wasn't jumping the gun about being like, obviously I was upset, but there was more information that was happening or more information that was coming out with things like IVF and, um, you know, obviously the impacts on adoption and foster that I just didn't understand. And I wanted to make sure I understood that before spreading misinformation or, or inciting fire because people feel a certain type of way about things. And I tried to maintain that, especially in my last year in the classroom, making sure that my students knew how to discern information, how to understand when you're reading someone's point of view as opposed to when you're reading a fact. And even understanding that sometimes when you're reading facts, you know, you talk about war against all Puerto Ricans. When you're reading that book, there's lots of facts in there, yes. But it is also the author's opinion and biases that are putting those facts together. And you have to decide as a reader whether or not you agree with his interpretation. You have to, like, just understanding that makes you a critical thinker. It makes you smart. I had my students reading Trump's words. You know, you want to put these words out into the world? Yeah, let's read it. But we need to have the the mindset and the lens to be able to really discern what you're reading, pull out people's opinions for it so that you can make your own informed decision. And this banning of anything, of anything, just keeps you from being able to make informed smart decisions. I hope you're right too. I hope that it is a loud um, minority of people who are able, like put in the place of power to make these, these choices. And, you know, I hope, I just, I wish that there was more, more movement of the people who are, you know, with good hearts, with the people who care. But we also, I personally feel, I mean, we could talk more about this when we get into your story, but I personally feel like 
the the political landscape pushes certain people away. I just recently had a conversation this weekend about how like I I obviously care about certain policy, but I have zero desire to go into politics. And I've been told multiple times that my voice would be powerful in politics. I don't want to be part of that. I have no desire, you know? So it's just like the landscape of that, the people who are willing to push through it are the ones that end up making the, the rules. And we're not doing so good right now with that. I know. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of people will say that uh, you, know, you have to have a massive ego to think that you are the only one yes. that could lead a particular ward, county, state, country. Like you have to really think your shit doesn't stand. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I mean, I think confidence is a great thing to have. Um, I think when you're confident to the point where you think you're better than people or the best person for the job and lack that humbleness, that humility mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, take a step back and think like running for, I'm thinking like, talking about like running for office, like, you know, like we look at the presidential election, like there's some people that'll stay in an election until the wheels fall off just mm-hmm. because they think they're the best person to be in the role, as opposed to who has the better policy that's going to help the most people? So yeah. it like comes down to the individual rather than, right? It comes down to the what's best for the few or the individual than what's best for the many. Yeah. Um, so not to make this a relitigation of past presidential elections. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but it matters. Sanders guy. Like I'm a big time Bernie Sanders guy. And I was like, what drew me to him was his, he wasn't trying to run for office. He was trying to get other people to run for office. Felt like nobody else was advocating for the policies he wanted to see in the country. Mm-hmm. Others he felt were seeing in the country, so he decided to run. Yeah. But, I mean, both times he ran, it seemed like the powers that be felt this is the right person that, yeah. that is the right person to run the country. And, I mean, those are the type of people that make those relationships, that have those built-in networks. Yeah. You know, I mean, we even see that with, like, the Cuomos over in New York. I mm-hmm. mean, the governor did some really awful stuff, tons of deaths, sexually harassed people, yeah. and his brother basically, you know, Play cleanup boy for him on yep. CNN. It's crazy. And it's like, then you wonder why people have distrust in things. So I think we're just, to your point, we're kind of pushing each other away to the point where we're now talking about coalition building or mm-hmm. lifting up voices in the community that could speak from a real place. Like we yeah. got this weird zone as a country where it has to be like a lawyer or a doctor yeah. or a Wall Street person that has to be running for office. But no offense to lawyers, doctors, or Wall Street folks, <laughs> but I feel like some of the coolest people are the people that I meet in organizing that are just trying to do what's best for their neighborhood, for their community. Um, you know, those are the people I want to see in leadership positions. Yeah. So, anyway, I got on a soapbox there, Sabrina. So. I mean, that's the whole point. Well, two things. First of all, have you seen the Netflix? I just started watching it, the Netflix special, like How to Be a Tyrant. No. It's fascinating. No, and it's exactly, it is exactly what you're talking about. So they actually go into like, um, I mean, obviously they talk about Hitler, they talk about um, Mussolini, Stalin, uh, mm, there was another mm-hmm. guy, I, I don't know, they, all they the horrible creep, people. They slow creep it till they yes. get like, this guy, yeah. Uh-huh. And he's, and the, the, the way that the documentary is going, it's like, it talks about it as like a quote unquote rule book. So it's sort of dark humor um, where it's saying like, these are the things that you need to do. And it talks about having that egotistical perspective and knowing that you are the only person or feeling that you are the only person who can solve this problem. And it has to be done through your way. One of the interesting things that I felt about Bernie compared to other people um, is that he was really intentional, kind of to your point about attracting the right type of people to to show like, I'm not, I don't have all the answers, but I think we can pull a lot of people into this room and everybody can work together to create solutions to problems. But for some reason, 
our country doesn't want that. The people who are voting, they want one person to be like, you know, this gilded human who can solve all the problems. And that just doesn't exist. The, the people who actually get things done are the people who know how to work together in a group, how to listen, how to hear an opposing idea. I always tell, like, even with our organizations, if we have a meeting and I'm the only person offering ideas, I don't want to be in that meeting because I want to hear other people's ideas. I know I don't have all the answers. So I need to have other people's opinions and ideas in that space. Like constantly saying this, that phrase, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And it's not to say that people are dumb or whatever, whatever, but you need people who are bringing in different ideas. You need people who are confident in their ideas, working together to be able to move move things forward. So anytime that someone wants to stand up on a soapbox and think that they're the number one, and, and you can tell like the answer, they, they think they're gonna solve everybody's problems. I'm like, mm, mm-hmm. that's not gonna- My antennas go up. My antennas yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know how you work in politics. We're going to get into that. Okay. So <laughs> let's, take, let's take a little bit of a break. And when we get back, we're going to hear some more about you and your journey. Sounds good. So let's talk about education, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously my happy place. So when I looked at the list that you sent over of like your education journey, you had a lot of really interesting pieces in there, including a seminary high school. And there was part of me that was like, wait a minute, did I know that he, did we have this conversation? Because I went to a Catholic elementary school. So I knew a little something about people moving into the seminary high school. But um, what, what uh, elementary school did you go to? I went to St. Ferd's. Okay, St. Ferdinand's. Yeah, I went to St. Ferdinand up on the northwest side. And we had like two kids who went to Quigley, which is where we went. Um, So what made you make that decision to to go into, were you trying to be a man of the cloth? Was that like your journey? (laughs) Uh, For a small window of time, it was. Okay. Um, You know, I actually, to give like, to give you even more background. So I was thinking about this the other day and I've actually been in Catholic school from preschool to grad school. Wow. Um, and shout out to my parents because we did not grow up in an affluent household and they somehow were able to afford a tuition. I mean, much better off than other people in Humble Park at the time. So I think back at like, I don't know how they managed that for high school and elementary school. Um, but I went Sacrifice, to the Sacrifices, for, yeah. Yeah, oh, it really puts into perspective. I think when you're a kid, you don't realize just how much your parents sacrificed for you yes, until... Same. You know, you get older and you know you get a, you get that adult lens. Um, so shout out to them for making that happen. Um, but uh, I went to Quigley uh, mainly because I went to St. John Birchman's eighth grade comes seventh eighth grade comes around. Got to decide. All my buddies wanted to go to St. Patrick's mm-hmm. um, across from Ferds. Across from Ferds, <laughs> Notre Dame High School for girls. So. <laughs> So, which actually Ferdinand's became housed uh, yeah. name, uh, for girls mm-hmm. uh, the last couple of years. They were open two, three years. Yeah. Um, but funny enough, Notre Dame for girls was a selling point for a lot of the guys. Of course. Uh, St. Pat's all boys school, but also St. Pat's, you could take the entry test and you're in. 
Mm-hmm. So for me, I wanted more of a challenge. Mm. I wouldn't say I was the most popular kid in school at an elementary school, but I, I wasn't exactly ostracized either. I was kind of the kid everybody got along with, but no one was like extremely tight with. Okay. If that makes sense. Sure. Um, so I think for me, I saw high school as a way to start a new chapter, be a new version of myself. Uh, that ended horribly because <laughs> my haircut was awful. My... <laughs> Damn, my eyebrows weren't done. No, um, no, I, I was not prepared on what that transition would look like, elementary school to high school. So that was the primary reason why I went to Quigley. Um, it was a smaller school. I feel like it could make stronger relationships than I would have in elementary school. And it represented a new shot. But also being in Catholic school, I really enjoyed going to mass. I really enjoyed learning about theology. Um, you know, my dad was in the, um, Vincentian seminary, so he was going to go into a religious order. Obviously that, that did not happen because I'm here. Right. Uh, uh, so he ended up two years after leaving the seminary, ended up meeting my mom at DePaul, but growing up, I'd see my dad pray. I, he was a very good source of knowledge, not only for history, but for, for religion. And we would just talk about things like Catholicism, just different Christian denominations, uh, the Islamic faith, the Jewish faith, um, which I think made me have, especially later in life, more of an interreligious uh, lens. You know, I like having those interreligious dialogues. I, I identify as Catholic, but I'm not like my flag's planted in the ground. I'm Catholic. This is the one true religion. Turn mm-hmm. around. I'm not like that. I'm like, let's let's like break open theology together and look at the historical context and see how we're, I don't know. I just like, I like looking at religion from an academic as well as a spiritual lens. So influencing my dad, Quigley was like, we want you to keep an option open for the priesthood in order to come here. I said, yeah, I'm down. They gave me a nice scholarship too. I was like, I was making friends. I like this place. So about a year or two there, I was to, long story short. No, um, I, I, this is great. Long, <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, I just, I, I felt some type of calling. It felt like a way I could give back, easily plug into a system. But then we had a lot of, growth for me as a person i started to like come into my own body and you know i started to realize you know girls like me a little bit mm-hmm. oh so, you know maybe maybe uh maybe uh priesthood isn't for me yeah and then uh then yeah after that um the the i think the catholic church was just going through a lot of controversies and i just felt like ah you know i'm i think i can give back in other ways yeah so about land of sophomore year junior year i started to kind of transition to looking at having a family, not a parishioner family, but more of like a household family and, uh, and going from there. But yeah, there was a little window there about, about two years. That's, that's so interesting too. Like I, I try, I've thought about this a lot cause I went to Catholic school and I didn't feel the connection to, um, the church. And I also feel like I was goofy. I was silly. I remember doing like, like, a confirmation classes and I made some joke because they one of the passages they read for confirmation was like tongues of fire came down yada yada and I was like turned to the teacher and I was like was it real tongues and the teacher was like only you would be nasty to say like that's how she treated me <laughs> and then so it, I just never felt like that was like a welcome space for me um also hearing my parents like struggling to make money to pay for the tuition they were doing the same thing. Like my mom was a R was a RN, but she only got her associates. So like her pay's a little lower than those who went on and got their bachelors. And then at the time, my dad was working at like ComEd. So they they were able to make it work, but it definitely was 
a sacrifice. And then the church was constantly kind of badgering us like, well, you got to make your contributions on this, that you got to do that. And that it just like, it affected the way that I perceived that experience. And then to also be told, if you are a person who is dedicated to this church, whether that's through priesthood or being a nun, you have to let go of these other elements of, 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 of I don't know, like a human experience. And that kind of broke my heart. But then at the time, I don't know if you were into this, Seventh Heaven was a huge show. I was so not in the Seventh Heaven, but I'm familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so like that dad was in the, you know, he was in yep. the church and he had all those kids. So then I, I started to understand that like, there were different religions that had different ways that you could be a leader in the church while still having a family. Was that something that you never considered? Because I don't, I don't know what Catholicism, I don't, I don't know if there's any other way to be a leader and still have a family in Catholicism, is there? You can. I mean, I honestly, and again, I, I identify as Catholic. I worked for the Archdiocese of Chicago as a youth minister, a young adult minister, all wow. before like the other roles I've had in my professional career. So anybody listening to this, I'm not bashing the Catholic Church. I'm just no. coming as a loving sibling. In this okay. You know, I'm just like, hey, we need to do things better. So uh, for me, I definitely have heard stories and have experienced the idea of money. Like, you know, mm -hmm. are you contributing? Like, but you can contribute to your parish community in so many different ways. It's right. time, talent, and treasure. If you don't have mm -hmm. the money, you can give your time. You can figure out ways to give back. But I feel like churches specifically, the way you show your support is how much you can give. Yeah. They, don't really they don't really turn that around to show why you're giving. You know, like you have a Netflix membership. I'm giving you X number of dollars a month right. to stream. I'm giving you guys money every Sunday. Right. What's happening? Right. Where, where's the ROI? I need to yeah. know my return on investment. <laughs> and that's where you come in like millennials, Gen Zers, you know, we're like, what's the return on investment here? Um, because yeah. for so long, it's like give, 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 because what you're supposed to do. And then, okay, well, what are we paying for? To keep the lights on or to provide services that this community needs? And I think that's a weird line that, not a weird line, but I think that's a line that a lot of churches don't know how to, yeah. uh, to balance. It's fuzzy. It is really, yeah. really fuzzy and they're not clear about it. Yeah, absolutely. No. And, and in terms of like having a leadership role. So, I mean, way the Catholic church hierarchy goes, you'll have, and this is like high level view, like cliff notes, but you, know, you have the Pope, Rome, head honcho, head jefe in charge. <laughs> and below them, he has a what's called the College of Cardinals. And the Cardinals normally oversee places called archdioceses, which is basically like cities. Uh, so you just have a, a hell of amount of uh, churches in the area. Then uh, below the cardinals are bishops, and the bishops oversee uh, diocese, which is like a smaller version of an archdiocese. So like Chicago's an archdiocese, but Joliet is a diocese. So like think of diocese like suburban places. Yeah. Um, and then uh, depending if you have like a bigger archdiocese, you might have multiple bishops that take up different regions of the city. So Chicago, we have six bishops and a cardinal. Um, then below that, priests, up to this point, up to from the Pope to the priest, everybody's celibate and nobody having any hanky panky. No one's having a, a huge, true human experience. Um, <laughs> but uh, and, and I, will, I have met a lot of guys, men of the cloth, that don't even aren't even attracted to other women. They're attracted to other men. Um, and they, that's another episode for another day where they just feel so repressed or like self hatred that they you know they feel like this is the right path for them. Um, I'm of the opposite. I think priests bishops, cardinals, let them all just get married. Yeah. That was not even a rule in the Bible. So anyway, um, 
It all comes down to property, people. Look it up, Google it, everybody. Um, okay, okay. But uh, yeah, so but then after that, you have what's called deacons, which wasn't a which was a thing, then wasn't a thing. There's been female deacons mm. in the Bible. Um, we actually have one quote unquote rogue deaconess in the archdiocese that a bit or that in the Catholic Church that a bishop ordained, um, which is pretty cool actually. But yeah. um, but as a deacon, you can either be transitory, which means it's kind of like getting your associates before you get your bachelor's. Okay. Or you can be a permanent deacon, like my dad is. So okay. he gets to be a part of mass. He can administer certain sacraments. Like he can mm. do baptisms. He can work with people on annulments, stuff like that. Um, but he has his entire family. So he still has his familial duties, but has his parish duties as well. The only thing is... And again, this is where I come, you know, with love, criticizing this constructive uh, feedback for the church. Uh, these deacons don't get paid for their oh. work. So they go through, when you go to become a deacon, you're going through years of yeah. training. Longer than getting a, a, a standard four-year degree. I think it's like five or six years of theology you're taking. Wow. And then after that, your wife has to join. If you're married, your wife has to join you through all that. You don't get paid. You got homework. You got other assignments. And then once you're in the church... You're basically at the whim of the priest. The priest's like, I need your help here, I need your help here. You're doing, you're helping out with masses, wow. you're helping out with sacraments, you might be helping out with other organizing that the church is doing, and you're not seeing a dollar of that. Now, if you have maybe an affluent church and someone's like really like trying to help their deacons out, sure, but that is not a process or best practice in, in the Catholic Church, unfortunately. At least here in the States. Yeah. yeah. I did not know that we were going to learn the entire history and breakdown of, of the church. Like, this is really, really fascinating. That's so, I had no idea. So you basically, it's one of those things like you're doing it because you feel called to serve in a certain way, but you're in, you end up putting yourself into a, a system of like volunteering, essentially, yeah, right? I mean, uh, yeah, and I honestly, I told, told my father this, you know, I think you're getting taken advantage of. Because at least they could get, like, normally you'll have, like, a fee you pay if you're getting a sacrament. Like, let's say a baptism, you're paying 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. That'll go to for the supplies, for the liturgy, for the time, for the deacon, or someone providing music. Um, but you might have been in a church like my dad was in that says, no, that money's just going to go straight to the church. Wow. So they won't even get, like, a percentage of $50. Um, and, like, my dad will walk there. He won't take the train or bus. He won't drive there. He just walk, which is great for his health, and sure. he likes it. Right. But it's like, man, you should just be able to, like, not worry about gas money or, like, you know. Take At the very least. Yeah, you know, you yeah. should have corners to do something that you feel called to do. Uh, so I think, you know, I think he's getting taken advantage of, like a lot of deacons are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of priests are getting taken advantage of, too, because they're not, I don't think a lot of them are allowed to live their full or bring their full authentic selves into their roles as the shepherd of their flock. Uh, in biblical terms. But, yeah. You know, I, I say with this with education that, even the name of the podcast, right? Like it, it about it being trash. I criticize it because I love it so much. I believe in the power of a strong education. I believe in teachers. The, and I believe in the fact that these systems can be fixed. They can be repaired. Otherwise, I wouldn't talk about it. You know, like I'm, I'm not talking about, I don't know, a food dish that I hate that I would never want to pay more attention to. Like I'm talking about it because I love it. And so when we kind of like criticize or... Even using the word criticize seems really harsh, but when we like speak truth to what is the thing that we notice in these systems, it is from a place of desiring repair. It is from a place of like wanting some sort of things to be made right, you know? So it's not like you want your dad to completely stop, but you're saying like, hey, it would be better if, you know, 
he was yeah, I mean, compensated. He's, <laughs> he's so talented and he has so much to give. The man's like smart as a whip. And yet it's like, I feel like you're wasting away there. Like I feel like yeah. you could do so much more in the community, but it is something that brings him joy. And I think that's what matters most. That's I just matters, wish yeah. the environment was a bit healthier for him. Yeah. I could see that having them having a hard time recruiting younger generations because that is completely contradictory to what Gen Z wants to wants to happen well, in the world. And I was going to tell you, I quickly actually closed my junior year. So I ended, I grad, technically graduated from St. Pat's my last year. Wow. Wait, did you have to go over to Pat's and I take have. classes there? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, which was great. I mean, quickly we took like two more classes a day than not to throw any shade to any St. Pat's folks, but... We took way more they weren't doing anything over there. <laughs> when I went there, I was like, they were like, you can have like two study halls at the end of the day and leave like a period after lunch. I was yeah. like, sign me up. I'm down. Oh my um, <laughs> but uh, a big reason, a big reason the archdiocese uh, used to close quickly was because it wasn't producing enough priests. Mm. So, I mean, and we see that in the data too, you know, like, especially for you as an educator, I mean, data helps inform we're you know leading a classroom or working with, with young people you know the data is clear that you even look at gee whiz like even five or six years ago we had like 365 around 360 ish catholic churches in chicago but within like a 10-year span all the priests retiring you only really have enough to to take care of like half that or a little over half of those churches so at some point we're going to start seeing more churches close you might see the church, uh, well, mainly the Catholic church, maybe be more open to married clergy or having women as priests. You know, I think these are all things we should have been doing. Um, and the evidence is clear that we need we need to have a, a bit of a course correction. Uh, so but I, I, I don't really go to masses often nowadays, though. Once the pandemic happened, I realized I was like not feeling, I was not feeling fed going to mass. Um, and I, I, my wife and I would go around to different churches and going off a little bit of tangent here, Sabrina. So, of course, correct me whenever. No, it's but, beautiful. <laughs> uh, my wife and I, you know, we shop. We'll shop around. A lot of people, uh, generations before us, your church was your neighborhood. You know, we, you and I were like, you and I would say like, oh, we're from Humble Park, you know. Uh, but back in the day, people might say, oh, I'm from San Aloysius. Or mm-hmm. from Houston, you know, uh, so looking at uh, all the way we're kind of shifting, I just don't think we're meeting the moment. And for me, I got tired of going to mass and feeling this incredible high. And then once the homily comes and the priest is delivering something that feels so disconnected from yeah. the reality of people sitting in the pews, I just found myself leaving angry. Yeah. And that's not what I want to feel when I'm trying to be spiritually centered or spiritually fed. Absolutely. Uh, so if I'm feeling this way and I'm, again, a youth minister, right. campus minister, Catholic, uh, young adult minister, I work for the Archdiocese of Chicago. If I'm feeling this way. Yes. Chances are more people are so. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they lost me in eighth grade. I'm going to be really honest. Yeah. Like, it, that that was that was how that worked. And, well, and you, were, you did catechism, right? Or you did? Uh, no, you were actually. In I was school. in the school. Yeah, so I was there. And what it kind of felt like, um, what I think the comparison I could make is like my parents made the decision to even put me in a Catholic school, not necessarily because we were so religious but because they saw it as a better option to the neighborhood public school. And so it was like a charter that you paid for. That, you know, that's that's really what it kind of came down to for us. So the experience was a little bit different, but um, yeah, that was it at the end of the day. Can I ask you a question about that experience, if you remember? Um, there was moments I, and working in the Archdiocese, I saw us a lot in churches where you'd have uh, kids that were in catechism classes. So, you know, they're taking that 
people listening don't know what catechism classes the are. The CCD like, classes. Yeah, we have the CCD kids. Um, you know, taking out weekends, you know, or in the evenings or in the week. As yeah. opposed to us Catholic school kids where we're getting it as a part of our curriculum throughout the mm-hmm. day. Um, and sometimes going to mass that's built into your, your school week. Yep. Like we went every Thursday. Tell me if you witnessed this. I witnessed this a little bit at St. John's. Not from my parents, and I'm sure not from your parents, but like other parents felt a little uneasy or as or, or, or uh, felt uneasy with their kids. The parents of kids that were going to school full-time at uh, a Catholic school, those parents felt a little uneasy about their kids fraternizing with the catechism class, the mm. CCD kids. Yeah. Um, so like there was one quick story I'll tell you where the, these kids are getting ready for First Communion and all the kids are sitting together. The kids that go Monday through Friday, the kids that go on the weekends, all together, and the parents felt like the parents of the kids that go there Monday through Friday felt like the catechism kids didn't deserve to sit in the front, that they Ooh. should be behind the elementary school kids. So there's even like those class divides, like a hierarchy, classism within those institutions. Like everybody's still getting that paying for that the- theology, yet uh, the kids that are going there, like part time, for lack of a better phrasing, are treated class citizens so totally I, I don't know I don't know how I can't remember specific examples but I know that there was definitely a difference that um those kids were different than us the CCD kids and whether that was in second grade with you know communion or with eighth grade through confirmation um because I actually left Catholic school for a little bit in between my, when my dad was a marine but for second grade and then sixth grade up I was at St. Ferd's um And it was also like, they're on our turf. Like, this is our school. This is our church, you know? So it was like the Crusades. I don't know. Like, (laughs) we're kind of acting there. Yeah. But we, there was definitely a difference. Um, And then you obviously, as a, as a kid, you kind of can't put your finger on why it's different, why there's a separation, but the adults absolutely had a separation and made sure like, okay, the CCD kids sit here. Birds can sit here, you know. There was, there was, there was separation. I didn't like it. No, no, I don't like that at all. Well, and it's like, what does that do to the kids in catechism and CCD? Like they're coming into this environment and feeling like they're guests. You know, they're not welcomed at the table. They're just like you're here to be in and out. That very like transactional uh, nature of it. I don't know. Just Mm -hmm. like, well, how does that impact? their view of being in the CCD Oh, class. yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they're already going to extra school. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, you kind of yeah. have to really go out of your way to make them feel welcome and a part of that community. And yet, I just, we drop the ball on a lot of things. As yeah. Churches in general, like that dynamic, I'm like, this is, like, obvious to anybody with a, a, a any type of emotional awareness or sensitivity that we're just allowing this classism to... To, to perpetuate, absolutely. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. No, for sure. I mean, I can see why you pulled in different directions from that. I wonder, too, if we, if when I was looking at this list, like you even going to DePaul, was that a religious choice as well? Or was that just because it was a good school? Yeah, uh, it was because a good school. Um, it was named one of the happiest schools. I think it was actually named the happiest school in, uh, I think, Illinois or, or America. or Both are impressive, but... I'd like to say in America. Okay. Um, and Maybe you're happy if you can afford to go there. Like, it's an expensive school. Right? Especially now. I mean, I think when I went there, when I went there, it was a little over 20K. Yeah. I wanted to go there. I looked, I think yeah. we're around, the, we're the same age, aren't we? Like, when did you start at DePaul? I started 2008. Yes. 2008. Okay. Then I'm older than you. I started 2007. 
but okay. around the same time. Yeah. So I looked at DePaul and I just, it was un, unreachable for me. Okay. Yeah. We might have both started in 2007 too. My birthday is September in early September. So okay. I actually did preschool twice. Oh. So. <laughs> fact, I just couldn't get my, my mind around blocks, you know? Right. Couldn't like, wrap around. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Like glue. It's okay. Yeah, what? Square blocks. You seem to be fine. You made it. <laughs> um, no, DePaul was good. DePaul was, I, I did a bunch of campus visits. So I went to University of Chicago. I went to Loyola. I went to DePaul. Um, I knew I wanted to stay local because I couldn't, I knew I couldn't afford, certainly knew my family couldn't help to afford um, uh, going out of state for mm-hmm. school. Uh, DePaul was fairly familiar with because I, I mentioned before uh, my dad was in the Vincentian Seminary. Uh, the Vincentians actually founded DePaul uh, same year, funny enough, that Puerto Rico was invaded by the U.S. But um, it was really, I don't know, there's just something about it. It was big. It was more of a commuter-focused school. Their mission was to work with first and second gen college students. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a second gen college student. Um so, yeah, I mean, Lincoln Park was a Puerto Rican neighborhood. It's where the Young Lord started. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, like, my history was around the table, and my influences were in those uh, very, uh, you know, intimate, familial moments. So, if my dad was talking about St. Vincent de Paul, you know, that resonated with me. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. And my mom would talk about Puerto Rican history. You know, everything just kind of, all the stars kind of aligned. And I actually found out later that my, um, my dad had worked there. My mom graduated there. My, I learned a bit more about my dad's history. They met there. They got married uh, at St. Vincent's, which is connected to the, the church. Um, funny enough, my wife and I met there in undergrad, too. And we both oh, wow. got married at St. Vincent's as well. So, Aw, lots Saint, of connections yeah, there. Yes. And again, just like I can criticize the church, I'll criticize DePaul. There's plenty of other things that we could do better. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I believe that DePaul Blue, it gave me a lot. Um, and I'm glad I made that decision. Uh, mm-hmm over a decade ago at this point, but yeah, it just spoke to me. Um, the, uh, University of Chicago was another one. So like mm-hmm. two offers I got that I really liked was University of Chicago, DePaul University. Uh, UFC's motto was where fun goes to die. And for some <laughs> reason that was like, now it's like, fuck that. Now I want to yeah. go to DePaul. Right. Uh, DePaul's closer too. You know, yeah. a lot of it was proximity, uh, mm-hmm. what I grew up around. I just liked the vibe. And what did you study while you were there? So I got a minor in community service studies. Actually okay. got a few uh, a few grant scholarships. One of the scholarship was to be a community service scholar. So you minor in community service studies, and then you spend basically your entire school year, some of your summer, going to different nonprofits. So we do, we're on a quarter system. I don't know if Harvard's on a quarter system, but no, DePaul's like the only place I know that's on a quarter system. Okay, but, right but yeah. yeah. So DePaul's a core system, so every 10 weeks, you're at a, new, a different nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would take me to North Lawndale, it would take me to Austin, take me to Inglewood, Pilsen, back of the yards, Humble Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did So I did that. That was great. Um, then I got my uh, major in industrial, or bachelor's in industrial organizational psychology. I knew I wanted to go into some type of psychology or anthropology. I really liked talking to people. I liked figuring out how systems worked. Um, I like fixing problems, but then I realized there's probably not a lot of money in, in psychology unless you like are really going for it and yeah. practice, master's degree. Um, so I decided to go with industrial organizational psychology as a concentration because that's all about applying psychology to business. 
So it might be a consultant that comes in and says, this is how we're going to improve employee-employer relations. Got it. Um, maybe somebody in HR, you know, I, I really like the idea of being a change maker for workers in the workplace, mm-hmm. uh, being that bridge. Uh, and I quickly realized in my professional career, HR is not looking out for workers, <laughs> looking out for the boss. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, in, mo- in most cases, the people that are hiring the consultants to improve employee-employer relations or fix things up are the boss. Yeah. So uh, the workers tend to get a short end of the stick with uh, mm-hmm. me, I saw, with the viable, like good paying jobs that I wanted to go into. Um, so as I was studying at DePaul, I ended up getting, I just graduated, um, ended up applying that industrial organizational psychology background to my work at the Archdiocese. So okay. I had an entire chunk of uh, the city. I had everything from Boy Cathedral up to the border of Lake and Cook County. Wow. High schools, churches. Um, so a lot of it was like, hey, how are we improving these environments for young people, for young adults? Mm-hmm. Are we like coaching the priests so they're a bit uh, more emotionally intelligent, mm-hmm. self-aware of Ooh. their presence in certain spaces? <laughs> say that I was hitting or batting a thousand. Yeah. Work, but I got to use that that degree in a, in a meaningful way, as opposed to you know crushing any type of worker organizing. Yeah. Yeah. So did you start the podcast? Because I know when we met, you had just started Baseo Podcast not too yeah. not too long before that. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you start that while you were, after you graduated, but while you were in your master's? Yes, yeah, so as well as in my master's. So a few years later, so I go from working at the Archdiocese of Chicago. DePaul called me because they were looking for a Latinx outreach coordinator. Mm. So I said, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Of course, like I said on this in this uh, episode, DePaul means a lot to me. So yeah. like, no brainer. Let me just jump back into this. So I was doing Latinx um, outreach coordination there. I was doing a little bit of campus ministry. And then I actually became the assistant director of alumni relations. Wow. It was around that time when I made that or got that promotion mm-hmm. um, that I was in kind of edging towards the finish line of my master's degree. We had to put together a portfolio. Mm-hmm. and to show one of those elements was our digital media background. I didn't want to put all that work into something that was finite. I've been like kind of like noodling with an idea of getting into some type of media, whether that's, you know, something somewhat simple like an Instagram uh, account, like page, or, you know, maybe mm-hmm. going to podcasting. And I said, well, let me do something that has a bit more longevity to it. So I met with uh, the powers that be at the Puerto Rican Cultural Center, said, hey, anybody else doing this? Because you know, in the Puerto Rican community, yeah. it's like Highlander. There can only be one person. Right. Because there's there's only 10 of us. So one person for one thing. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I know uh, I grew up around the corner from Paseo Boricua. I was like, I know I know the steps I got to take. Let me just ask to make yeah. sure. Because worst case scenario, I'll help out on something. And then sure. I can use that on the portfolio. And that's why I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm scratching that itch. I mean, you can learn if someone else is doing something, you can learn by partnering with those people as well. You, exactly. Absolutely. And my mentality was similar to that. Like, I was like, look, this is my idea. I want to tap into the community here, highlight stories that aren't highlighted in, in traditional media, um, and I, ideally make like a podcasting house. So like there's other people in the community that wanted to get into this. We could show them how to do that. Uh, you know, they could be on the show or have their own show, but it would all kind of fall under its own little podcast network. Um, so that would kind of, uh, you know, uh, rising tide rises all ships. Yeah. So, oh, that's beautiful. Know, like, I didn't know you had that vision like that. That's wonderful. That's the long-term vision. Whether yeah. or not that is still the vision, that might change. You know, fund, <laughs> uh, funding's a bit of a beast, but we can talk God. about it offline. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, no, I started because yeah, I wanted to do something that was life giving. I didn't get a lot of education in the classroom. I mean, DePaul, uh, Puerto Rican history was like a couple pages, you know, and it was very much through a colonial lens. So we weren't talking about things like the gag law, la ley de la mordaza. We weren't talking about the Jones Act. This is why I don't know Woodrow Wilson was the one that, put, that passed it. <laughs> my freaking point exactly so we yeah. don't have no we don't we don't have that so yeah. for me i was like this is a way for me to meet cool boricuas doing mm-hmm. interesting things not only in the diaspora but around the world it allows me to be challenged in my views of what's going on in puerto rico from a diaspora lens i get to talk to people from la isla mm-hmm. um so yeah i get to meet people i get to learn ah it's a it's a win-win the only thing is we don't really make money off of it any money that we do uh, goes right back into the the podcast. So like a Riverside account, you know, doing other audio editing software. Um, so I, and I like that, you know, I don't know. Um, but I mean, corporate sponsorships would be great and all, but sure. I don't have the bandwidth to right. meet the demands of what comes with that money. You know, yes. I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just like, this. it's the reality. Yeah. That's where I am right now. So doing this thing on a bi-weekly basis, but it all started those last few months of my, my master's program. And I got That's that in, I got my master's in uh, public relations and advertising. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I honestly, I remember telling you this, that I shared with you that I loved what you created because I moved out of the city. I was born in Humble Park, but then my family constantly like moved to different spaces. And then um, I eventually left Chicago. And when I was in grad school, I, what I had really started to study was where I had, could have this intersection meeting of loving education and fully acknowledging that I am a Chicago Puerto Rican because my experience as a Chicago Puerto Rican is very different than someone on the island, than someone even in New York. And when I heard your podcast, I'm like, man, I would have been obsessed with this. I mean, I am, I, am, I love it, I'm going to say it. But I would have been like extra obsessed with this in grad school when I was trying to take these stories and let people know Every time we talk about Latinos, it should not be just talking about Mexicans who are wonderful. But if I listen to a podcast that is about the Latino experience, you know, they're getting better now. But at that time, there was just not a lot that had to do with people that weren't from Mexico. And Mexico itself is a super diverse experience. And they weren't even, you know, showing the diversity of that in a lot of these places. So I just loved what you did because I found I felt or what you do, because I feel like it just weaves such a thread that no one else, it's not even just, is anybody doing this on Paseo? No one in the nation is doing this. No one is sharing these stories, you know? And and it's just really beautiful the way that you are able to share the diversity of these different stories, you know? Do you feel that when you're like, when you're recording, are you just like, do you get giddy and geeked out? Because <laughs> like all the people you oh, get I to get, talk to? I get excited with each guest, um, whether it's like, you know, Sonia Manzano from Sesame Street, or it's like, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of like, like having you on, you know, like you're a local CTU teacher, you went to Harvard. I mean, you have a unique story that I think is important for other people to hear, mm-hmm. um, especially for young Puerto Ricans to hear. Yes. Um, and that's not to say higher ed is the only route. You know, I think we need more investment in trade schools. You know, right. it's not, not for everybody. But like having those examples is so I think it's so critical. I, like, I like things like NPR, you know, some, they'll talk about Puerto Rico, but you got like a 10 minute clip there. Yes. You know, you might have a Puerto Rican elected official on there. But again, 10 minute clip. 
Yeah. So for me, I get super excited because I get, it's my show. Mm-hmm. I get to be as nerdy as I want. Yeah. I get to ask questions that aren't clear in the American traditional media of what's happening in Puerto Rico. Yeah. So it's like, I, I don't know. I, I feel more, not the most in tune with my Puerto Rican culture. I don't know, but contrary to how I did in the trivia game, <laughs> don't know a lot about like Puerto Rican history as much as I'd like to. Sure. But I think doing this show has made me become more aware of Puerto Rican history mm-hmm. it has put me in a position to not only be a thought leader, but it's put me in a position to be in spaces with other body class where I can say, let me tell you about 1917. Let me tell you about 1898. Let me tell you about the Grito de Because uh, we just, I, for me, it's like, it's a, doing this offers me other positives than just the one-on-one time I might get with the guest. Yeah. It's um, residual effects from it. Absolutely. Yes. But I have to watch myself. I get, I start talking about things that I find super interesting and other people, I'll like ask for feedback. And some people are like, "Eh, yeah, you don't have to ask this question. They didn't really answer it. Like, "Ah, you know, you should cut this chunk out, which I appreciate because I was the type of kid in school where Sabrina, if you gave me a reading assignment and gave me a highlighter, the pages would be a totally different color Mm because I just highlight every single word is important. So I love it for that. But I also have to like take a step back still provide an in-depth conversation, but not every single thing that we talk about is necessarily important to the listener. It might be oh, important yeah. to the relationship we have, but so yeah. I have to like temper myself a little bit there. But yeah, I it's, <laughs> it's horrible to say this, but I heard, I heard a writer once say that the phrase they use in writing rooms is you have to kill the baby because like the thing that you write is your baby, but you have to be willing to part with it because other people don't necessarily care. I am thousand million, 100% struggling with the same thing here. I mean, look at this conversation now, you know, it's like, go, it's going long, but to me it's intentional, purposeful, useful, but who knows what people think when they actually listen. Right, um, right. Yeah. So what are some stories that have been really, I know that you love all of them, but what are stories <laughs> that you've heard that have been really impactful to you? Or you think like if someone comes in like, all right, I, I have three minutes, <laughs> not three minutes, but I have, I have uh, the, the, with, the bandwidth of three episodes. What are ones that I should absolutely listen to of the Paseo podcast? Mm, good question. Um, ooh. You put me on the spot here. Uh, okay. I know. With the caveat that you love all of them, right? You're, they're all really, really great. So I think it depends what you're looking for. Because on the show, I will give you, I'll definitely give you my recommendations. But I should preface that with, you know, the show will go from long form interviews to just me talking about history mm. to maybe me having volunteers on or my wife on and we break down the news. And every episode, we try to break down some of the highlights in the Puerto Rico news world. Um, But like a a good example, if you're looking for more of like a history of, um, you know, Puerto Rican history, there is our latest episode before it went on break. It's about the 1966 Division Street riots. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also like talk about other news at the end. But um, that's a really fascinating part of Chicago Boricua history, just Boricua history in general that we don't really talk about. There was a lot of riots happening. I mean, you can make up as many excuses as you want about why it's not as, not excuses, but reasons why it's not as known. Um, but that's a great short episode to listen to. Um, you know, if you're looking for, like, to, to hear a celebrity talk on the show, uh, yeah, I, I mentioned this before, you know, Sonia Manzano, who played Maria on Sesame Street, would be good. But we also have uh, Melissa Cristina Marquez, who is a marine biologist. She's been on, like, you know, Discovery Channel, she's been on National Geographic, 
She's given TED Talks, uh, Good Morning America, Forbes. Like she's a pretty uh, well-known person, but she's a Boricua marine biologist. So we talked about like sharks in the Caribbean, um, realizing that funding for science in Puerto Rico is practically non-existent. And you would think being a part of the US, they'd get that proper uh, funding. Um, so those are good. Um, there's also, these are all like within the past 20 episodes, I want to say. So people okay. go to social media or go find these. Um, and then there's another one that we talk about, like Puerto Rico's restructuring plan um, and uh, Luma Energy. Uh, these are all interconnected issues um, that I think you'll probably see a lot more. If people go to an episode, it was like in the 70s, but it was like, are you more, are, you, are more young Puerto Ricans favoring Puerto Rico independence? So we had somebody from, we had a journalist from Insider and um, uh, a data analytics person. And they broke down data from uh, Puerto Rico from registered voters there showing that the younger people are favoring uh, independence. But there's also a, a lot of nuance there, too. So um, that's a lot. I mean, we, we cover a lot. So we got celebrities. We have people that are <laughs> organizing, small business owners, history episodes. It's, it's a bit of a, a mixed bag, but uh, it's great. Look, at, look up all the episodes with you on it. You know, or, yeah. I'll recommend those episodes. But, what's yeah. your what's your long term vision for the podcast? Long term vision for the podcast is to have like a podcast network. I mean, I think it'd be great to have other uh, people of color that want to get into this. You know, like thinking of like a BIPOC uh, podcast network that touches on different uh, stories. It might be formatted like your show. It might be long form, just strictly long form interview like me. It might be a new show. It might be a a, a comedy show. Um, but just creating a vehicle for people to get into this world and feel supported, um, regardless of where they come from, you know, even like their long-term vision. I mean, things might change over time, but creating that creative space to flex those muscles and actually put into action what you're thinking about. Uh, so that's kind of long-term. I had my eye on this old building on Baseo that WBEZ owned, but property in Chicago is crazy, let alone pop property prices on Paseo. So long-term vision, it'd be great to have a building, studio, and then we can do like classes in there and whatnot. But yeah, that's a lot of work. That's a long ways away. It may never happen. But my biggest thing is I just want to see other Puerto Ricans doing what like you and I are doing. Like I want to see more Puerto Ricans get into podcasting, more diaspora voices in this space. Um, you know, like a blend, like people have from the island doing stuff that maybe speaks to a diaspora audience. Like, how are we connected to our culture? We're not, we're not really connected as much. So, uh, like diaspora Ricans versus Puerto Ricos on the island. So, I don't know. I think I, I, at minimum, I'd like to see just being a person out there in the ether that someone can reach out to and say, "Hey, I want to get started in this. Oh, let me show you what I did. Here's the equipment I, I got. You know, these are some recommendations." Like if I can just be that, I'll die happy. Uh, if I can create something a bit more massive and create a nonprofit out of it, I mean that's that's a beautiful thing. That's just the cherry on top. I just I like just being someone someone can reach out to for a little guidance. Yeah. Oh man, that sounds really beautiful. I definitely could see that vision and the the need for it too. A lot of times my my brain thinks of kids, obviously, and I think of like future generations. I don't have hope for the boomers anymore. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking forward and I always think like, what is going to be beneficial for the next generation and how can they improve? One thing I think our community really lacks is that interconnectedness. I think we, we lack, um, 
we're a community, but we are. I made this joke the other day and Brianna, you know, from the Lolita was like, she's like, I can't stand you. Cause I was like, I hate that our community is on the street called division because we are divided. Damn. That's good. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, there's a lot of division within our community. There's a lot of like, quote unquote, infighting and who did what. And, and even the fact that you had to see if someone had a podcast, so you're not stepping on somebody else's toes. Like, that that is a reality and and i will say that the reason i believe it's it's like that is because we are a traumatized people right like how can you not be we have a crabs in a barrel mentality because the elders in our community have been hurt they've been scorned they've been pegged against each other and a lot of them didn't have the social emotional bandwidth to problem solve it was in survival mode like a lot of them were really in in that and I see that with elders in my family elders within the community um and so it makes me sad more than more than anything so it's like I feel a lot of our generation is working to undo and repair that harm for the future generations you know one of the things I took away from um my Catholic school experience was it at Ferd's there would be on Saturdays, Polish kids would come in for Polish school. I don't know if you would ever, I, I doubt it was called Polish school. That's the week it was called Polish school. Actually, no, I think that is what they, I mean, I, I think they have a name for it in Polish, but all my Polish friends would say Polish school. They would say Polish school, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they oh, come that's in. That's right, if anybody's Polish listening to this. I, mean, right? <laughs> I don't mean to be, offend, I don't mean to be reductive. It's like, I, that's what it was referred to, yeah. So they would come in and they would study Polish. They would learn how to read and write. They would they would do church too, you know, because I remember those kids be like, we go on Thursday and then we go on Saturday to, to Polish school. Um, and I always felt that our community could benefit from that because how many Puerto Ricans do you know that don't speak Spanish, right? How many of us don't know this history of our culture? And I think something like a Saturday Puerto Rican school would be absolutely fantastic to get our future generations and kids to know their culture, to know about their place in the United States, to feel connected. I mean, look at the festival. Whenever those festivals happen, the streets are flooded with pride. How can we take that pride and like move it into a positive direction to increase education rates in our community, to increase job rates in our community? We're a proud people. Let's take that pride and have some self-confidence in your abilities as well, right? Um, and it starts... Well, thank you for the snap. Thank I'm giving, you. <laughs> I'm snaps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it starts with this these conversations, you know? No, no, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just like, yeah, yeah, say it. Um, no, it's spot on. I think you're totally right. I honestly, if there was a Puerto Rico school that I could be sent to as a kid, I probably would ask my parents to sign me up for it. You know, I don't if I were blessed enough to have kids and there was a Puerto Rico school, Puerto Rican school, like, yeah, I'm signing you up for this. I, I think that's such a valuable thing to do to create those spaces. We just don't have enough of that right now. Um, and I think with the democratizing of uh, media, something like podcasting is something, while it does take a lot of work, um, it can also offer an easy entry point into this world to really get your perspective out there. I think to your point, like a lot of elders in our community, absolutely, like they, they, have, they have their own trauma that they've experienced. You know, I'll see a lot, we see a lot of ripple effects in that and the territorial nature. Uh, how they feel about certain things, certain initiatives. Um, and, and yeah, I get it. I get it. But um, when people are coming to you earnestly trying to help, um, 
you know, it, you need more than just good intentions and what your vision is. You need to be able to figure out how to make sure that those people have a seat at the table so they're not on the menu. And normally we use that from a very like, like, uh, you know, corporate corporations taking advantage of workers, but we don't really apply that enough within ourselves. You could have, you could have a well-intentioned person that doesn't realize or lacks the awareness to realize how present they need to be for everybody and who they need to have around that table because they think you know where they're where they need to go and everybody's going to follow along and I, I just don't know that you're set yourself up for sustainability um yeah sustainability yep that's that's it right there oh well is there anything else that you want to share about your journey about the podcast anything that you want folks to really know um yeah i mean if you go to paseomedia.org you can learn more about me you can learn more about our team you can learn more you can see all of our episodes we're we're creeping up on 100 pretty soon wow that's huge um yeah, so we're, we're almost there. We're keeping up at 100 episodes, which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, you go there. If you feel like giving to the podcast, you're more than welcome to. We're a part of the Chicago Independent Media Alliance, which is like Chicago Readers, Sun-Times, Injustice oh, Watch, nice. Block Club okay. Chicago. So we're a part of that umbrella. So they actually created a website where you can go in, give whatever you can. Um, or don't give anything. Whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, any little bit helps. But also, uh, one thing I feel really helps bring the show together is getting constructive feedback and suggestions from people. So if you listen to an episode and you're like, ah, I think this could have been tighter, or if you ever thought about like approaching this topic from this angle, you know that stuff is always welcome. I never take offense to that. Um, by someone reaching out, that shows to me that they care, that they've listened. Um, so I value that. Uh, so if you have a story idea, not nominate yourself for a story. Um, or just give me a suggestion. I'm all open to that. But you can do that to at paseomedia.org. I love that. Thank you so much, Josh. Um, our last little bit before I let you go, because I know you get, you got your family coming over. Um, do you have any words of wisdom for our listeners? Words of wisdom. Okay. Uh, from an educational lens, professional lens, what are we talking about? Anything. Something that's been resonating with you. Something that you feel like people need to know. I think uh, I've had a lot of conversations, and this goes back to like my background in IO Psych. Like I do a lot of interview prep with people. Um, and one thing I feel more BIPOC folks need to hear when they're advocating for themselves in uh, you know, maybe the job hunt, give yourself time. It's gonna be three to six months. But once you get in there, once you know you have an interview date, do interview prep. Get used to it. Don't just assume you're gonna walk in there and you know hit it out of the park with your responses, really prepare yourself, come ready with questions. And then my words of wisdom really come into play here. Once, you, if you secure the job interview and you do well, you get offered the job, never take the first salary. Mm -hmm. Negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. That's right, <laughs> advocate for yourself. Um, I think a lot of times BIPOC folks, we just, again, it comes from that, that uh, I don't know, just generational trauma, you know, you know, this fear of not having something like, oh, if I say no to the salary amount in this offer letter, uh, they're going to offer it to the next person. You know, they're going to pass me up because I'm a person of color if they're going to get somebody for the same amount that's white. You know, so you just kind of get you, you kind of get in your own head a little bit. But the reality is this is from somebody that's me as a hiring manager, done interview prep, work with people in HR. Everybody's expecting you to push back and offer another number. Um, you don't have to be like, I want 20K more. If they're offering, you know, 60K, 
all right, can we get that? Or like they, they're saying like six, $6,150. Can we get closer to 6,000 or, you know, I'm sorry. Can we get closer to $65,000? Right. Um, so always a pushback. I always feel like you get one or two pushbacks on a salary. And if you are really called to the nonprofit world, they might, they're going to be working with a little less money than a major company. Um, but you can nego- other things are negotiable. So maybe they can't budge on the salary, but they might be able to budge on vacation leave. They might be able to budget on flex time. They might be able to budget budge on other benefits that really make working there worthwhile, even though you're not getting the full compensation that you want. So always advocate for yourself in those spaces. Hiring managers are expecting you to push back, but they love you don't. So just just be aware. You can always push back on your salary amount. And other things are in the control too. That's beautiful. I actually just had this conversation with a, my, my sorority had an alumni event a long time ago and I met a girl um, there who reached out to me recently and she's like, I follow the stuff that you do and I, I, she's in the classroom. She's like, I want to transition. So she, she and I went for coffee so that we can talk about that experience. And um, so we were just having this conversation about like salary negotiation because in the classroom, you don't get to negotiate. You're at a step in a lane and whatever. Um, it's just, it's set up based on that. The other, the piece of advice that I gave her um, was talking more about the concept of networking, which in education, a lot of folks don't necessarily do. And I was sharing with her that my journey, I use LinkedIn like crazy. I was on LinkedIn every single day. I would, I would look at a job or I would look at the, the company and then see, is there someone that I know who works there or is someone that I know who knows someone that I know? And then I kept meeting with people. So I might say like, okay, if your company is hiring and maybe, you know, a friend of mine knew a guy who was like, worked in a completely different department, but worked at the company. Then I would say, let me, can I take 20 minutes of your time to talk to you about the company? What are the expectations? What is your role? Yada, yada. And what I shared with her is like, it didn't necessarily lead me to getting jobs in those different companies, but I felt like that was interview prep for me. It made me learn different lingo that people were using in their companies. It helped me because I was having conversations with strangers. It helped me because I had to talk about my career. So I had to like start to do my elevator pitch. And by the time I interviewed for the current role that I had now, I was no longer scared. I was more confident in talking about myself. I knew buzzwords to use, you know, and that was a huge part of my journey. And I don't know if you noticed this too, um, have other people look at your resume. When I'm looking at resumes, I can tell when other folks haven't looked at them. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I can tell. You, I'm like, you have not had a peer editor. Like, <laughs> It's brutal. Some resumes out there, like, I'll do that too. I'll, I'll ask to review people's resumes. It's one of the first thing I ask people because like, even little things like formatting. Like, yeah. well, wow, you don't notice that this is like not aligned. Am I like being super anal here? Did y'all just not look this over? And like misspellings, grammar, it's just it, it's surprising. Yes, Even like I had that aesthetically same exact, pleasing, you know? Yes. Anyway. Yeah. Oh my god, I had that same exact conversation. I saw a resume one time that had like a bullet point with no information. And I'm like, well, now I'm guessing. Like, right. what is what's here? Right. Well, and also like tell like a lot of people what they'll do is they'll have like their what their title is and then they'll just say what their job roles were, but not what right. they did in those jobs. And some people yes. think they're the same thing. But you actually right. have to show like, okay, you super, you're responsible for supervising your team. I was responsible for supervising, evaluating five full-time salaried employees. You know, yeah. like being like specific to really show specific. that I'm not just volunteering. I'm not just 
managing, you know, five volunteers that, you know, just come off the street for a few hours. I'm like actually overseeing an entire team that's here full time. Uh, yes. Like being very specific um, in, you know, what you're saying your duties were, what you did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Oh my God. I've been, I've been saying this where I'm like, the resume is not the point, the place no. to be humble. Brag, mm-hmm. brag, brag, brag. Yeah. Okay. And the resume Thank is you, really sir. just getting your foot in the door. Like the resume yes. is really just like, do they check the boxes? And then mm-hmm. you're only, you're getting the interview because they want, they're interested in you. So you don't have to right. resell your resume in the interview. You're just building off that. I think a lot of people, it's just, you know, what kind of read or regurgitate what's on their resume already, but that's what got you. Yeah. So expand upon. Yeah, that's what got and you. You're talking yes. about, and you're talking about inter- informational interviews, like 15, 20 minutes. I've taken 15, 20 minutes out of somebody's day. That's yeah. what you're talking about, right? Informational. Um, that actually, I was going to tell you, um, I know we're like over time, but my in-laws aren't here yet. So let's go. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> I was going to tell you that uh, every job that I've had has come based off of my network. You mentioned the importance of that. Like, unfortunately, especially in Chicago, no people don't want anybody that nobody sent. So mm-hmm. you want to make sure that you're building. Yeah, you know, if anybody, if this, I hope this is helpful for people listening. But like, you know, yes. if you want to, if you want to, like, really set yourself up, build your network. It's awkward. Mm-hmm. It's not always fun. Um, mm-hmm. But the more you flex those muscles, the funner it becomes. But I, yeah. the job I've had has been someone calling me and saying, "Hey, we have this new position open." we think you'd be good for it. Would you like to interview for it? Yeah. That's how all that, that's all just from um, network building. But when you mentioned doing informational interviews, I feel like that is such an important piece because that's how I got to working at a PR firm. I knew another uh, Puerto Rican woman. Uh, Mm -hmm. She was a a VP at at an agency. She came and talked to my class, my master's class. And I followed up with her. I was like, can I get 15 minutes of your time on LinkedIn? Wow. And then we met up at Zeno Group, which is where I ended up working. We had a 15 minute conversation that turned into a half hour that turned into an hour. So, yes, wow. like you said, it was like interview prep, but it was yep. also, in my case, at least, it led to her saying, Well, we're actually hiring for these positions. Wow. Which okay. Interested. And I was like, Sure. And she offered to look at my resume. And like, love that. I was like, Wow, that's great. And that all was just didn't know me, just like mm-hmm. random person in this class, met you up. Um, Enough. But you showed initiative and follow through with all of them. Yeah. And I think in, like, yeah. in a little layer to that, like you said, it didn't lead to a job offer, but it was good practice. So like mm. at, at, at worst, which I think is great, you're flexing those interview muscles. Yeah. You're building your network. Uh, but actually, I yeah, and I think like the middle ground, if you're not going to get an offer to a job out of doing an informational interview, that person, mm. you've effectively built your network. So maybe that person knows somebody yeah. else in the industry that could offer you a gig. So again, same stuff yeah. you already know, but like, and you've No, people need like, to hear this. It's yeah. fantastic. We don't talk about this stuff enough. We don't, we don't. And I learned, a phrase that I learned in grad school um, was they always say it's who you know, but it's not who you know, it's who knows you. Yep. Like who is going to be the person to call you up and say like, actually something is going on and we think you'd be a great fit for this because we already know what you're able to do. So that's why I'm loud on social media with the stuff that I do because people know if there's something that has to do with like education, that has to do with like art education, I'm going to be the person that you call. And I've gotten consulting jobs off of that. I've gotten other roles off of that. Like mm-hmm. there's so much that happens when you share the things that you are passionate about when you build up your network in different ways and absolutely it, it'll benefit you in the long run. I'm glad that you shared all of this. This was really, really good. Ah, thank you so much, John. Yeah, yeah, no problem. This fun. Right. Well, on that note, 
We're going to head out. You can go see your in-laws when they come. Yeah, I'm going to enjoy the beautiful weather for a thunder. Yes. I'm so grateful for this conversation, really. Like uh, like I said, I love your podcast. I love what you do. Um, I did not realize we were going to have so much conversation about the church, and I think that that's really cool and exciting. Um, and, of course, the little demon child inside of me is like, yeah, let's talk about the church. I like <laughs> I'm always down. I'm always down. <laughs> so thank you so much, Josh. Thank you for taking your time, um, and we will talk again soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to It's All Trash, a podcast diving into the trash world of education. My name is Sabrina Alisea, and you can follow me at Esla Maestra on all socials. Our podcast is It's All Trash Pod on Twitter. Today, we were joined by Joshua Smizer de Leon, the host of Paseo Podcast. You can find him at all socials at Paseo Podcast. Help support the podcast by subscribing to the Patreon. Supporters can get little gifts and maybe even a shout out on the podcast. See you next time.